Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Bound to Context. I'm your host, Ryan Shriver. With me today is my good friend, Dave Carrillo. Welcome to the program, Dave. Uh, thanks for having me. Dave's an education consultant and a writing professor who is actually intimately involved in problem solving. So I thought I'd have him on the program today and tell us a little bit about what that's like. So Dave, why don't you tell our audience a bit about yourself? Uh, okay, well, um, my name is Dave Carrillo, and uh, the for the last, uh, I would say, 10 years, I've involved myself in, in various capacities uh, around the focus of uh, critical thinking, how to define critical thinking, how to apply it, how to learn it, how to teach students and, and, and adults how to think more critically, and then also how to teach teachers how to do it. Um, and so that's taken place in a lot of different uh, scenarios. Uh, a lot of that has been uh, in the university classroom where, uh, you know, uh, if we get a chance to get into it, there's, there's actually a, a sort of major critical thinking crisis going on. And, and then uh, I've, also, I've also given presentations on critical thinking uh, to uh, various organizations and universities across the country. Um, and some industry uh, and some industry and professional uh, scenarios as well. So, you know, if, if you're going to go ahead and ask sort of like, you know, who I am and I have to, I'm sort of bound to give you an answer uh, along these lines, I would say uh, I, I'm, I'm slowly becoming an expert in teaching uh, critical thinking uh, and, and thinking about critical thinking and helping people to think more critically. So, so Dave, tell me what types of, so you're, you're an, sort of an expert becoming an expert in critical thinking you've been teaching, you know, how does that relate to kind of problem solving? And so walk us through, like, what types of problems do you apply critical thinking to? Like, help, help our audience sort of understand through your world. Well, uh, you know, there's, that's a really great question. I'm glad you asked it. And I've been thinking about it for a while. And there's actually a, a few different ways I can speak to this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the first, and the first way is, is just in, in a sort of general you know, organic sense, like how do I solve problems or how do I attempt to solve problems? Um, and, and that's, that's the first thing, but to, to get the other elements involved in here, there's also, like I said, the metacognitive element of problem solving, which, which exa- exists, uh, you know, as a, as a very important layer over any sort of problem solving uh, situation. Um, but then also uh I uh, I can talk to and I'm hoping and I'm hoping to talk to you about it in terms of uh, the kind of consulting uh, work I do uh, with with organizations, businesses, and organizations as well. But let's let's start from the beginning. So when I attempt to solve problems, I'm I'm coming at it from a, a framework that I I actually co-developed with a former colleague at the University of St. Joseph uh, many years ago, uh, and uh, it's essentially a framework for critical thinking that's built around the neurobiological uh, wiring that every human brain has in it to think critically. Um, and uh, essentially, you know, that wiring uh, follows, uh, you know, more or less like some basic steps, uh, which is uh, understand the situation, um, recognize danger, reward, um, make a decision and, and follow through. Uh, and that's, and that's a very sort of, uh, you know, rough and tumble way of talking about how we were able to survive bear attacks and other things as we evolved as humans. Um, but the framework that I would that I would I would speak to uh, in terms of how I would go as an individual go about solving a problem is is I'm going to first look to analyze it, right? And analyzing uh, is uh, you can find 
dozens of different definitions of analysis and, and uh, that can be a problem at times, but the kind of analysis I'm talking about is essentially uh, looking at the situation and breaking it down into the, you know, the key components uh, and aspects that I think are significant in some way. Um, the next step out of that analysis uh, is uh, essentially formulating some kind of critical question, right? Uh, and that means that, you know, when I'm analyzing a situation, I could list, you know, 50 or 60 different key points, right? Or if you're looking at a problem, there could be dozens and dozens of things that seem significant. But at some point, we have to essentially boil it down into what we think is most significant or what needs to be solved, right? And that's, that's what I mean by formulating a, a critical question. And so, in other words, uh, to put it very simply, um, you know, we make the decision to, uh, as to what to eat for lunch every day, right? But the critical question within that decision is always something different. If you're making lunch at home, the critical question is going to be, well, something like, well, what do I actually have to make a tasty lunch with? Or, you know, if you're at a buffet, it's like, well, you know, to what extent do I want to eat a lot of mac and cheese over the salad or those kinds of things? Like there's always a critical question that a situation boils down to. And honestly, if you don't have something like that, uh, you're not really going to arrive at, at the best kind of, you're never, you're not necessarily uh, assured of arriving at any kind of workable solution. But essentially that's, that's the next step. And once you have a critical question, then you can strip away all those points from your analysis that don't necessarily revolve around that. And then you need to evaluate those. And evaluation, you know, in these terms is just uh, assigning or, or weighing evidence alongside other evidence. Like what, what, what are the factors that are more valuable or less valuable or, or more significant or less significant to coming up with some sort of resolution to this critical question? And that's actually, again, something that's hardwired into our brain. We're never in a situation where, um, you know, we're, we're never not evaluating one component against or alongside another component. Uh, it's something that the brain does in order to make sense of literally everything around us. And, and, and so th that's the next step. Um, once you evaluate, you can, you know, once you've evaluated all these components, you can essentially come up to, you can, you can draw an initial conclusion to your, to your critical question. Like, you know, after weighing all this evidence, I, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, this is the way to go on this particular problem. But then there are two more steps here. Um, and the next one is to complicate that. And, and complication is actually something that's, you know, I'm very interested in as a sort of overall philosophical and, and technical and, and educational concept, but complicating in this framework is essentially looking at any kind of initial conclusion I drew and then factoring in gray areas, things that I don't know, things that I'm not sure about, evaluative moves that I might be wrong uh, about in some way, shape, or form, and factoring that into the evaluation overall. And so uh, we can come to any kind of conclusion and argue for its rightness or uh, ignore all sorts of other options. But if you want to come to the strongest conclusion or the strongest uh, resolution to a problem, you need to complicate the issue. You need to factor in gray areas, unknowns, ways that you could be wrong, alternate interpretations of the evidence. Um, and, and that's, and that's that next step. It's a final step. And then, and then obviously like you do have to come to a conclusion and then you do that. And so 
what I've just sort of explained is this is this framework that uh, you know I, I help people use to think more critically, solve problems in a, in a smarter way, and and that framework is analyze, uh, question, evaluate, complicate, and conclude. Um, I see. And the reason why I was able to you know go through that is because. You know, if you can define your process for problem solving, if you can name the steps, if you know what you're doing as you're doing it, um, you can you can refine it, you can strengthen it, you can go back to places where you may have done uh, not such a good job. And so, if I understand that before I do anything, I have to analyze the situation, um, but I can't come up with some sort of critical question. Then I can go back and reanalyze the situation and that's where that metacognitive aspect comes into it and that's a big part of problem solving as well is you know developing an awareness of what you are actually doing uh to uh solve the problem what what steps you're taking wh where are your strengths where are your weaknesses where is there more information where is there less information that doesn't necessarily happen as effectively as it can unless you're you're aware of what you know how your your thought process works how you're thinking things through. And so that's sort so of a, a very sort of overarching synopsis of my problem solving. I like it. I like, and so, so what's interesting is you're kind of anchoring it off of how the human brain sort of naturally is what's wired. It's, and so, you know, right. so talk us through that. Like, how did you, one, learn about that one? And how did you sort of learn to anchor? Let's see if I can get the steps. Analysis critical questions, evaluations, conclusions, complications, and then conclusion again, I guess, or you circle back to that one. Right, um, right. Like, well, um, that, uh, that's a great follow-up. Uh, essentially, this this stems out of a, a, a and, and this is another way to talk about problem solving, but this stems uh, from a problem that I, uh, that I first took on, I would say about 10 years ago now, uh, when I was at the University of St. Joseph, my colleague and I essentially needed to try to raise critical thinking outcomes, you know, across the campus. And, you know, that has, that's a problem that's rooted a lot in, in, in education and, and educational psychology and, and, you know, a dozen other aspects that, that we could get into at another time. But um, there are two, when you look at critical thinking methods, there are, you, you can lump them basically into well, the way we lump them is to, into two different categories. Uh, there are a lot of critical thinking methods that are prescriptive. that are essentially uh, methods that people come up with and with all the best intentions and say, all right, everybody, you're going to think critically this way. We're going to problem solve this way. We have this many categories and first you do this and then you do that. Prescriptive methods are all right. Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. But uh, more often than not, and especially in the classroom, they don't work out uh, because they're 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 hard to they're hard to teach they're hard to learn they don't necessarily apply across the board like you can learn one system in one class and go to another and have that system not be functional at all and then um, you know so I, I looked at you know I was involved in looking at all these sort of prescriptive methods and it, it, it slowly you know became clear that you know prescriptive uh, modes of critical thinking aren't as necessarily good as they could be. So is there anything else out there? And, you know, this is uh, a point, you know, many years ago when, uh, you know, my colleague and I 
we just started looking at all the other research out there. And eventually we came to, um, you know, or neurobiology and, and evolutionary biology and, um, you know, modes of mode, uh, ways of learning that have uh, neurological uh, science behind it, uh, fMRIs, those kinds of things that allow us to see how the brain works. And along those lines, uh, I ran into uh, a scholar named Stephen Hughes. He's a, he's a, he's a biologist. He's, he's a, a, I don't have all his credentials here, but he's a, he's a neurobiologist. He focuses a lot on, on uh, learning and children and so on and so forth. And there's a compelling video, and I can find the link. I can share it with you, um, where he walks us through uh, a situation where you've got like a paramecium or an amoeba floating around in a Petri dish and a couple of paramecium's. And the amoeba is slightly smarter. And so the amoeba is really much better at sensing its environment. And so where the paramecium are kind of just floating around. And so the amoeba that's better at sensing the environment recognizes at a certain point that those paramecium's could be food, right? Decides that the paramecium's are just floating around and don't present danger and uh, absorb the paramecium's. And before you know it, the paramecium's are trying to get out of the amoeba and they can't and they're eaten and the amoeba gets stronger and the paramecium's are, are gone for good. And, and in the process of, of, of that, scene, he narrates these very basic neuro, neurobiological moves, um, sense the environment, right? uh, you know, um, locate or, or sense danger and reward, um, make a decision on that and act. And that hasn't changed. I mean, we still do that. And in fact, he makes, he makes the statement at the end of his little speech there that that's essentially what work is, right? Where we're, you know, uh, and if it's not work in the office, like we, you know, I hope to get to in terms of like maybe you solving a problem with, you know, a software platform or some sort of design or the kinds of things that you do every day uh, as humans, we're sensing the environment, we're making decisions and they're just more complex, right? And some of them are ingrained, but some of them aren't. Like, you know, uh, if, if you've got kids and your kid gets in some sort of trouble and you haven't experienced that before, then you're, you're analyzing the situation on the fly, right? You're, you're actually evaluating, well, how mad should I get with my child? Should I, should I, should I go nuts? Should I, should I, should I talk them through it? You know, how, you know, you know, and you're weighing that out and, and then you're like, well, uh, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to talk them through this problem. I'm not going to be mad. I'm not going to punish them this time around. But you don't necessarily know for sure, right? There's that complexity that, that we sort of built into this framework, but it's something we do every day. So at a certain point, it becomes a really kind of counterproductive to force a human to think critically in a way that they weren't necessarily wired to do when you can bring that process to the foreground of someone's mind and, you know, teach them to define it and teach them to practice it and then apply it in various situations. And so that's kind of where it comes from. So, so you mentioned sort of the prescriptive way and not so much working is, is what's the sort of the second way you described? I mean, what's the term you, you put descriptive. on? That? Descriptive. descriptive. It's, it's more of a, it's, it's observing how something is, is, is learned. And so uh, a really good uh, way of thinking about that is, is, um, you know, and this is a, there's a joke that I've made at, at certain points, and I can't remember who, who, who said it first. It's, it's a quotation. It's a paraphrase. But school is the only place where you, uh, you learn like you do in school, right? So 
um, the prescriptive way of learning to ride a bike, if you were going to college, it would be first you learn all the parts of the bike. Then you learn how to put the bike okay. together. Then you're going to learn how they work, you know, separately. Then you're going to take a test on this, memorize all the parts of the bike, right? But if you yeah. think about how you actually learned, the descriptive way of learning the bike was you got on the bike, right? Your mom or your dad or your uncle or your big brother or sister, whoever, pushed you on that bike or they ran with you and you fell off and you crashed into a tree and then you got back up and then you started to balance a little more. That's the descriptive way of learning how to ride a bike. We learn by doing and falling over and doing again and getting some help from someone who already knows, right? The, the prescriptive way is, is very much like memorize the parts of a bicycle. Now take a test on the bicycle. And that's, and that's, and that's, that's my experience with critical thinking instruction in, 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 most, in most schools and even in, in industry. It's like, you know, we came up with this great way of, of, of problem solving and, and we're going to put it into a bunch of boxes and so on and so forth. But if you want to get better outcomes and, you know, don't make up something new. Don't reinvent the real. Just, you know, figure out like how humans are already trained to think and make them more aware of it. So that, that's, a, that's an analogy uh, between the prescriptive and the descriptive in terms of riding a bike or literally anything. So no, that made a lot of sense. And I think that, you know, if we think about it, have you heard of the, the OODA loop? Have you, are you familiar with that? Um, um, it it reminds me I, yeah. of, of something because, so the OODA loop, and I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but basically it was developed by a fire pilot in World War II, and it's called OODA because it's observe, orient, decide, yes, and act. I remember and, now, you're and, right. And, that, and it very much, as you were talking through this, kind of remind me, of, and we've known about it, um, and it became pretty be famous, right? No matter where you are, it's a four-step process. And what, right, what, right. what this is reminding me about is it's closer to the way that you're wired. Like the, the, it's it's kind of closer to the way you're wired. And so it makes right, a lot right. of sort of sense. Um, yeah. So, um, and I, you know, I'm cheating here because I, I, I just recently got a very large monitor. So I have you on one side and, and uh, yeah, I first learned about this loop actually uh, when I was at the University of Wyoming doing a workshop, someone came up to me uh, and said, hey, did you hear about this? And, and, and at that point I hadn't. So he, he, he showed me. And of course, you know, I believe that um, Wy Wyoming is where the Air Force Academy is, I believe. Right. Is it? Uh, Colorado, I don't know. It's, it's in Colorado. Is it Colorado? Okay. It's one of those square states. But um, to some extent, yeah, it is. Uh, I'm looking at it now um, and it's got some really great. Uh, there are some aspects that do mirror that more of the sort of uh, descriptive process that I'm talking about uh, where you could run into a problem with something like this loop is that if you're not a fighter pilot, it doesn't necessarily always apply. Right. And so one of the things that I've tried to yeah. do in solving that problem as a consultant is how flexible can this framework be so that you can learn how to do it in one capacity and then take it into another and apply the same thing and, and have it still produce strong outcomes. And that's, one of the things that we can we can talk about, but that's one of the things that I'm one of the irons in my fire. One of my new projects is 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 reaching out to um, you know people uh, in the in industry who who are, are concerned about the kind of outcomes they're getting from their employees, and using this framework to develop uh, more functional systems of teaching employees how to not only think more critically, but integrating that into the kind of products that that they need to produce, like reports or memos or any sort of presentation so that they can communicate their thought process better, that people can understand it and follow it and add to it and so on and so forth. So, but you're absolutely right. You're on, you're on the point because uh, the loop aims to 
describe it, right? And if you can describe it and define it, you can you can reflect on it, and that's that's major in terms of of this kind of work. Like you know, you can a lot of scientific a lot of scientific discoveries had to do with like falling you know butt backwards into some sort of revelation, and that's always going to happen, and that's great. And a lot of innovation can happen that way, but not always, right? And you don't necessarily want to always rely on, you know, the, you know, Archimedean, like, sort of like, you know, uh, aha moment, uh, the eureka moment, as it were. Uh, you, if you can sort of, if you can, if you have a process, you can say, hey, team, you know, we're going to start with the analysis phase, right? And we're going to spend a week analyzing the situation and we're going to come together and we know what analysis means. And we know what kind of information we've been gathering. And so when we come back and meet, you know, and it's time to form a critical question, everybody's in a better position to form some kind of question to allow the, the team to move forward, right? And so we never want to get rid of in innovation and, and the aha moment, but, you know, stronger, more consistent production, you know, requires, you know, problem solving that can be you know, that can be described and, and, and integrated uh, and is both functional in a lot of different, in a lot of different scenarios, but complex enough to, you know, guide an amoeba from one cell to five cells and that to a fish and so on and so forth. I mean, it's, it's biologically wired and it, and it works because it's functional, it's flexible, it's, it can take on complex loads or it can figure out where the best place is to hide from a bear that's chasing you. So I, that's where I see the strength in that loop. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I would contend with it too. Uh, but I, I love the, I love the comparison that you made. Yeah. And Dave, we're, we're, we all want to be fighter pilots. Just, just as a, no, look, like, as a, as a, if I, look, if I could do it all over, fighter pilot is one of my top five, that and professional hockey goalie, probably, you know, yeah, Oh, actually uh, smoke jumper. God, I've always wanted for some reason, uh, and I say this in, in all seriousness, because I know it's like it's like just gotten like super critical these days since half of California is on fire. But for the longest time in my life, uh, I, I've always wanted to I always thought that would be a profession I would want to do. I don't know why, but, yeah. you know, so, yeah. But hey, so pilot, yeah, yeah, not that bad. Yeah. Yeah. Goose top gun, you know, maybe just so, a cargo plane. Maybe, you know, maybe something yeah. that has longevity to it. After a while. Yeah. You know, I can fly, you can fly a cargo plane, C-130, like well into your 50s or 60s, I would imagine. But after a while, the F-22 is like, you know, out of, out of reach. Yeah. So let me ask you, so let me ask you, in a, from a terminology perspective, mm -hmm. define, when you say the word critical thinking, how is critical thinking separate from just thinking? Like, you know, we, we do a, lots of thinking all day long, but you've been using the term critical thinking. Like, what's your sort of definition of that term? Um, that's a really great question. And thank you to uh, go into it. It's, it's not necessarily because it's hardwired. Critical thinking is not necessarily separate from thinking. Right. And, you know, obviously there are levels of thinking and, and the idea of expertise is also something that factors into this because the more expertise you have in, you know, in a discipline, the, the better thinker you are, but the difference I'll say this. The difference is that critical thinking uh, has a built-in or, or implied, and this is implied, but not necessarily easy to always accomplish, an implied layer of metacognitive awareness to it, right? Critical thinkers, a, 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 huge, a huge component to critical thinking 
uh, is that you're able to reflect on the thought process and, and describe the thought process and walk us through the thought process, right? If I were to come to you with like, you know, uh, a problem, uh, I don't know what kind of hands-on you have anymore, but if I came to you with like a programming problem back when you started out, like when you first came to Richmond, your first yeah. job, you were doing a lot of programming, right? Am I right? Yeah, right? you're right. And so if I came to you with like a run-of-the-mill problem, you'd probably be able to rattle off the answer pretty quickly um, to some extent, right? Or you would think about it for a minute, right? And you would very quickly run through all the options. You would evaluate the options. You'd probably have some analytical information already because you were doing that every day. Right. And you would even be able to tell, you know, if especially if I was like a noob at your office, you'd be like, no, you, you're paying attention to the entirely wrong. You're paying attention to the wrong issue here. The issue is this, not that. In, in which case you would have been like, no, the critical question in this case is not X, it's Y. And I know it because I've been here for five years already or so on and so forth. You know, in a situation like that, no one could accuse you of not thinking through the problem. There's just certain facets of that thought process that are ingrained because you have expertise. However, and this is where I would, this is, this is where I would, you know, start with a group of, of people. If I rolled into, you know, if I rolled into your outfit uh, to do a workshop, you know, we would talk about this very thing is if you were to, if I stopped you, right, mid process, right? and said, no, walk me through your analysis, walk me through that evaluation. You'd probably be able to do it, but it would make you think for a little bit because there are a lot of things in our lives that we don't necessarily, that there are a lot of moments in our lives where we come to conclusions without necessarily being aware of the thought process, right? And so if I asked you today, you know, um, something like, what did you have for lunch? Or, you know, how, you know, uh, how did how did you decide to wear those clothes? There's a thought process there, and if I forced you to, you could walk me through that, right? But the big problem with the idea that that's just as good as critical thinking is that oftentimes, and we've seen this a lot recently, um, we confuse personal opinion with thinking, right? And personal opinion doesn't have to necessarily do with analysis, right? Or coming to some sort of formulating a critical question or evaluating evidence. And in fact, a lot of our thinking, whether we're aware of it or not, is greatly, greatly influenced by a whole circus of cognitive biases and distortions that we're not aware of. And I don't want to get too far into that, but this is something that I'm actually really interested in, and, and I've, I've been messing around with writing a paper uh, on it. But honestly, um, you know, we're not if we're not aware of those distortions, we're going to just keep going on our merry way, thinking that we've been thinking things through, when in fact we've been, you know, succumbing to anchoring bias for years, right? or any number of the other biases that have been proven through research that we do. And the, and the problem is, is that our brain wants to keep us alive. And in a lot of situations, part of the way our brain needs to keep us alive is to come to really quick answers, come to answers that don't make us uncomfortable, come to answers that we can reliably think are right, whether they're right or not. And so we're thinking like that all the time, whether we like it or not. And sci even scientists, right, 
have to check their biases at the door. And there's like a whole component to writing a scientific paper where like, here are the limitations, here are the biases and those kinds of things. And it's, it's, it's built in because we have them, right? You know, um, we want to see a certain answer. We're going to find it in the evidence. Um, you know, there's all sorts of, there's a whole set of biases that factor into negotiation that, that color our negotiations and, and, and don't necessarily help us out in the long run, you know, some of that thinking is going to be good. And the more expert you are, like I said, like that problem that I would, that I would bring you back in the day, you would 99 times out of a hundred, you would have the right answer because you were an expert in your field. Um, but that's not always the case. Right. And critical thinking has a, a reflective component, a metacognitive component, that needs to be built in because if you don't know how you're what you're doing when you're thinking through a problem if you don't have a handle on your process you don't know where you went wrong you don't know what information you need you don't know you know where the gray areas are right and so that first step in terms of stronger critical thinking is to actually be able to define right and to, to answer your second question then um Defining critical thinking is essentially coming to a complex um coming to a complex solution to a problem based on uh, analysis and evaluation, right? I might tweak it a little bit. Coming to a complex resolution for some specific critical question based on analysis and evaluation. Interesting. So it's funny because the, there's some terminology, the word outcomes, you've mm -hmm. used it a, a couple times here and in our industry, it's become more in vogue in the last uh, five to 10 years or so. The work we, we did on Mobius was, was, was we use the term outcomes right. as well. And what we see for in our sort of industry today is, you know, these are what people are trying to achieve. I often talk about like business outcomes and customer outcomes. Like what, what right. is your business trying to achieve? Right. And what right. are your customers trying to achieve? And those could be influential in, in determining what features you build in what order where you make investments. So in your case, you mentioned outcomes like, so if a client's going to hire you, they're trying to get their employees or presumably their employees or their team to have critical thinking along the lines of achieving some sort of outcomes. Is that the same? We use the word outcomes. Are we using a similar terminology here or are you um, different terminology about well, outcomes? We're, we're absolutely using similar terminology and, and, and that's a really, that's actually, it's, it's an, it's an important uh, point that you bring up because um, you know, strong, you know, strong enough critical thinking framework, the outcomes are kind of, the type of outcome is irrelevant if, if what you need to get there is stronger critical thinking, right? But yes, uh, if, you know, if this applies to any facet of, 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 of your, your, your business, your profession, if you, if you see that there's a particular issue, situation, or a problem on the customer side, you're not going to necessarily just roll a bunch of dice uh, to come to that solution, right? You would necessarily want to analyze that situation in some capacity, right? Figure out what it is you're seeing, you know, what are the components of the breakdown, where, you know, what are the top five issues that your customers have with your product, and so on and so forth. If you're, you know, if you want to solve that, then you necessarily want to use that analysis to formulate some sort of movement forward, some sort of direction, whether that's a critical question or, you know, an avenue of attack or however you want to work with it. Like if you want to solve this problem and come up with the smartest outcome, 
you better be analyzing and you're better than use your anal your analysis for something that moves you forward. So yeah, they're very, they're very, very similar in a lot of ways. It's just really um, the context of the outcomes and how you apply the, the, the framework really. So uh, there's outcomes in terms of the kind of product that you, you, uh, you produce. There's outcomes in time in terms of the updates to that product or what kind of, and now, and now I apologize if I'm, I'm using terminology that is way off, but you know, if you need to update a piece of software, if you need to, you know, if you have like 10 different patches that you think you need to do, right. Uh, you're going to analyze that situation. Well, what seems to be the most significant patch? What do you need to get to first? Why is that the case? How are you going to go about it? And it's the same thing in the classroom. The outcomes there ostensibly is that in a history class, the professor is going to want stronger history thinking, you know, in an English class, the professor is going to want stronger English thinking or in a biology class, stronger labs or however it is. And it's the same kind of thing. Like, you know, there's the problem overall of how do I get my students to think? There's the problems that you present them in order to get them to think more critically and think, you know, and be stronger thinkers. But it all comes down to outcomes. And, you know, not to oversimplify it, you know, there are outcomes where, you know, you can you can rely on what's worked before. You can roll a bunch of dice. You can, you know, rely on, you know, what seems to be the, the right answer right out of the gate and just, you know, put the blinders on. Or you can have a process that, that, that allows you to not only formulate this question and evaluate evidence, but then actually integrates into it. Well, where could we be wrong, right? What's, what don't we know still and how do we factor that into how we move forward? And uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the subjects that I'm actually really keen on and, and that I'm looking into in, in terms of developing, uh, you know, this framework for uh, to be more functional in, in a more professional setting is, is not the problems that you have, but the, the kind of forecasting that you would want to do, the problems that might exist down the road, right? Um, you can be reactionary or you can be proactive. And I don't want to, you know, sound too trite here, but when you're, you, when you're forecasting a year down the road, two years down the road, what are we going to need to develop? How are we going to need to, you know, maintain X, Y, or Z? Those problems, and people talk about them all the time, right? Wicked problems. I don't know if you use that terminology where you are, but that's a big, it's still a big term in a lot of the research. Um, you know, wicked problems uh, aren't necessarily the problems that exist now. They're the ones that are that don't exist, but that you want to head off in the paths, uh, you know. And so, outcomes, you know, the way we're talking about them are very similar. It's just the context is is different. And you know, if you want to sort of parse things out, you can either have like, you know, outcomes that are sort of smart or not so smart at all, or as smart as we possibly could have them, because yeah. we were able to apply, you know, a consistent process of critical thinking. And everybody's, you know, we all speak the same language. We're reflecting on it. We're communicating in that way and so on and so forth. So It's interesting because, you know, to your point, outcomes in our world cut both ways. In other words, if you set really good outcomes, it can mm -hmm. align people, orient them. They're all moving in the same direction, right, to achieve a goal. Right. If you set bad outcomes yeah. or outcomes, that then the, the flip side of that, right, people will orient around it but produce, you know, or go in the wrong sort of direction. And so, right, right. you know, part, part of the, the, the art uh, of it is to identify 
you know, what are the key outcomes, but basically, and I hate to cut it sort of good or bad, but essentially, you know, orienting people around focus on something can be very positive. It's harnessed in a good way. Um, but if, yeah. if, a, if a leader, and for example, in our world, if a leader says, I'm going to set an outcome that makes the leader look good at the, at the efficiency of another department or, or, right, or right. You know, some, then it can go in sort of a, a, a bad direction. They're still doing outcomes. Um, yeah. But they're, but they're doing outcomes that have a local effect on them to the detriment of other right. people around them. That's, that's huge. And I love that point. Uh, and I'm gonna, I'd like to extend it. Um, I would, I would absolutely agree, right? And I think that, yeah, it, it, you, it's, it's not necessarily oversimplifying if it, if it gets us in categories. But yeah, there are bad outcomes and there are good outcomes. I'm totally with you on that. And honestly, you know, part of uh, you know a strong critical thinking process is just being able to ask better questions, right? Hmm. And again, like you know, sometimes a good question will come out of the blue, right? But most of the time, you know, the stronger questions are going to come from a process that an individual or a team has learned and practiced and knows how to apply and, and so on. And honestly, even the really interesting questions that some, you know, someone, you know, pipes up, you know, the quiet genius in your on your team pipes up in the middle of a meeting and asks this question and everybody's like, wow, that's amazing. Look, hammer them on it. If there's probably a thought process Oftentimes you'll be able to figure out like, well, what do you, what, what was your analysis or what were you focusing on or what, what were you looking at? Um, they're very often, you know, I, I, how many times did they say, well, I had a dream, right. Or I could tell to the Ouija board and that's the point, right? I mean, stronger questions again, still come from, you know, stronger critical thinking. So yeah, you know, these bad outcomes can necessarily be set by, you know, uh, you know, really poor questions or really poor thinking when it comes to what do we need to focus on? And so, you know, that's where that idea of framework, again, this idea of being reflective and understanding your process becomes uh, paramount. So, so you being an educator for, for as long as I've known you, right? You, you've been teaching for over 20 yeah. years uh, now. What, what do you think the role of Look, so look in today's students, and I, I teach it as, as well. But what are the what's the role today in critical thinking for students, and how is that the same as it was twenty years ago, or how is it different or evolved? Like, um, what's your thoughts that, on that? that? No, that's a that's a major question. Um, let me see if I can. In terms of one of our problems, and I'm going to say our very loosely, our one of our country's problems is that we don't have enough critical thinking. And, you know, you can argue, you know, whether the kind the CEOs or CTOs or, you know, the, the leaders in industry um, are asking for, you know, actual legitimate critical thinking or people who are just smart enough to, uh, you know, follow directions or function on their own or so on and so forth is debatable. But what we know from the research and what we've known from the research for the last 20, 25 years is that critical thinking outcomes in college students and high school students are just continually dropping. And there's no test or study um, that shows any differently other than we're consistently last in critical thinking. We're consistently last in being able to discern what's fake news and what isn't fake news. We're consistently last in categories like digital literacy. And, you know, there's some really good research on that. Uh, the Stanford History Teaching Group has done two really great studies on digital literacy 
that looked at um, the ability of uh, students from middle school to high school to college uh, to discern what's fake news, um, uh, you know, and what's advertising, what's biased, what's, what's, what's uh, you know, fabricated uh, within the digital environment. They did one in 2016 and in their, uh, and again, I can share the link. And in their executive summary, they said the ability of students to do this is, um, what did they say? Not abysmal and not egregious, uh, atrocious. I, 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 I am not making this up, but it was a, it was a, a it was a, a, a synonym to that. Synonym, synonym to atrocious. <laughs> and that was in 2016. And actually there's this whole interesting uh, mode of events uh, where all sorts of different programs were introduced and, and different methods were tried and so on and so forth to sort of raise the ability of those students to think critically. And then they redid this study in 2019 and they just picked another synonym. It got worse, uh, the executive summary, and you can see the numbers. Um, and students, and this is where, you know, this is where it's tricky. Again, we're hardwired to do this, right? Uh, research shows that as little kids, very little kids, like infants even, like one-year-olds, um, they can they instinctively know when an adult is lying to them because they can they're good at evaluating evidence and, and uh, you know discerning the, the elements of the situation. That kind of thinking drops off as they enter school, right? And the primary mode of all school, uh, you know, for better or for worse, and this is not all teachers and, and everybody's out there like throwing punches and and trying to do better and, 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 and out for the betterment of their students. But generally, sadly, the primary motive of school is, you know, uh, lecture, memory, you know, lecture test, lecture test, right? And we know, again, from good research, fMRI studies have been done. Uh, and the brain activity of a student in a lecture is, 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 is almost flatlocked as opposed to in a lab or at home doing homework or dreaming or doing literally anything else. And we also know from good research that the brain is really great at taking tests. It'll memorize the stuff, right? It'll front load that memory. It'll take the test and it'll dump that memory, right? Because, you know, it knows that like it needs to open up, uh, you know, space in, in, in the parts of the brain that, that work with cognitive load in order to make room for the next set of information. Um, and that's not across the board, but that's the primary mode of education today. And so it's really, it's kind of this, there's this, well, there's a crisis in critical thinking and, um, you know, there's, and everybody's out to try, you know, various different modes and methodologies, uh, but no one's really necessarily hit on it yet. And, you know, we know that students are hardwired to do this. It's just a matter of, you know, lining up the right pedagogy and 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 putting them in a, a good situation to do that, and and you know, honestly, failing that, uh, there's again uh, plenty of research that shows that uh, adults have plenty of neuroplasticity in their brains to learn how to think critically even well after school, which is what I'm so interested in in terms of you know, uh, team dynamics and, 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 and collaborative work in, in industry, how to integrate this kind of framework, how to make it work for these teams so that the outcomes are better. But, you know, right now there's, there's you know, our students, United States students are, are lagging behind a lot of the other countries that have seen critical thinking as something that's necessary for the future. 
so how about this day uh in the interest of time man we could talk for, for, for hours this is absolutely right we ran out of and, it yeah and, and uh and uh, i'm really interested in sort of like as i mentioned most of my guests come from a bit of a technical background but i see a lot of parallels and one of the things i'm taking away from this is that you know we're born with a way we're hardwired with a certain right. way of thinking and then it's kind of forced out of us through our schooling system and so rediscovering yes. and reconnecting with that um as we get in sort of the you know beyond education the workforce and other things right is, is important and then also to be able to describe the process by which you think that being to the next level and be able to just put, put names like you've been able to put sort of you know names to the different steps of it is a huge sort of step in thinking about well put, uh, yeah, it. very much so. And so, mm-hmm. so I, I'll, I'll close with sort of probably the last most important question is, what are you listening to these days? <laughs> I heard about that one. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I did take some notes because there's, there's a lot of, there's, a lot, there's two basic contexts in which listening occurs. And one is when, you know, the family is in the car and we're driving someplace. And at that point, you know, I try to, I try to balance out my iPod which is now 15 years old and still ticking <laughs> with um, the kind of music that I feel uh, fairly or unfairly that the rest of my family should know and love um, and the kind of music that my kids love. Like, so yes, uh, you can scroll through my iPod and see, you know, fish and the dismemberment plan. And then, you know, imagine dragons and Bruno Mars and, and all these other things that, uh, that are floating around that, you know, my, my, my kids, you know, I, I can't, I can't deny them that music, right. They've got their own top 40 radio and it was different than, than what mine was, but I guess if I had to nail it down, uh, I'm going to go ahead and make, I, I, I I'm going to make three statements. One, uh, when I'm doing any kind of creative work or work at all, uh, I'm, I like listening to very long, uh, loops, uh, or videos on YouTube of trains traveling to places uh oh. so you know there are like excellent nine and ten hour videos of a train you know uh shot from the, the you know the cab view of, of the locomotive traveling from like one town you know in, in you know arctic norway to another town nine hours away and i'll just put that on and or uh sheet ice breaking up on rivers and sloshing around but uh, there's a, a Russian folk band that I stumbled upon called, uh, 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 what is it? They're, they're called Atoya uh, a, a to, a Yo. And um, they're, uh, it's, it's a, actually it's Otova, right? A-O-T-O-V-A-Y-O, uh, Russian folk rock band. And I think they're great. And they just play a lot of songs in Russian, but they're fantastic musicians. And it's just, you know, a refreshing mix. Uh, of 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 instrumentation and and voice and it has nothing to do with most of the other things that I listen to and and then uh, I've I've rediscovered Eight Fixed Twin and uh, I would I would love to come back on your podcast and argue with literally anybody else as to whether they can find a better Eight Fixed Twin song than Heliospan, which I think is by far the best one. So that's format right. trains Russian folk rock and. And ice breaking up on, on a river. Yeah, it's make of that what you will, sir. That's quite I a find it soothing. Uh, so, uh, 
Well, cool, Dave. It's so great to see you again. It's and great to uh, see you too, man. look forward to at some point here um, seeing you in person. Uh, <laughs> I know, but, right? Uh, but otherwise, uh, thanks very much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. Awesome.